I want to show a hands here, and I want you to be honest with me. I'm not going to call on anybody, but how many of you read your Bible this past week at least once? Okay, that's about everybody. How many of you read something this past week along with it, something like the Daily Bread or some sort of a study guide? Okay, all right, about half of you. You know, how many of you had a Sunday school lesson or something that you had to dig deeper into to study the Word this week? Okay, all right, we got about 10 or so out there. I want you to think about that for just a second. I mean, vast majority of everybody reading their Bible at least once in the week, probably every day throughout the week. Collectively, all that time that we spend studying the Bible, reading the Bible, giving attention to God's Word, it begs the question, why? Why do we do this? Why do we, as so many do, start our mornings first thing in the morning with the Bible? Why do we learn the Bible and study it, memorize Scripture, teach our kids to memorize God's Word? Why do we approach circumstances in our life and we seek what the Bible would say about those circumstances? Why, as a church, do we have kids' club? and Sunday school, and children's church, and ABFs, and the messages, and the 242 groups. Why all of this emphasis on the Bible? Why the Bible? Well, over the next few months, we're going to answer that why question. I talked a few weeks ago saying that we're going to get a little bit deeper into the Word of God, and into truth, and and to doctrine, and and our faith. And, And this is going to be one of the steps of it of taking a look at our Bible. Many questions that we have concerning our Bible, I'm going to attempt to answer those questions. For some of you, it's going to be a review. You already have heard this before. It may be a reminder to you about the Bible that we have here and why we have it and what it's supposed to do in our life. For others here, you're going to be receiving some new foundational stones to add to your, your... your foundation of your faith to shore up your faith and over the next few weeks because i know we have like missions month starts next week and and then we have a couple weeks and then we get into the holidays and then a few sundays and we're into christmas and and everything along those lines throughout those weeks on and off we're going to be answering questions like is the bible the word of god go ahead and we're going to put that up there is the bible the word of god we're going to answer that question that's going to be a question of the revelation are the words, secondly, are the words of the Bible accurate? And is it without error? That's going to be a question of inspiration. Are the words of the Bible authoritative? That's going to be a question of inerrancy. Are there any mistakes in the Bible? Do the present books of the Bible belong there? You know, there's been a lot of religious-type writings. Is, is this the Bible that we have? Are these the ones? Why these the ones? It's going to be the question of canonicity. And finally, can we understand and apply the spiritual nature of the Bible to our lives? And we're going to answer that question of illumination, what the Bible is supposed to do within us. We make great claims from the Bible, but the question for us is going to be, does the Bible stand the test? Is it worth giving us all the attention that we do to the Bible? And over these next weeks, as the evidence gives us this affirmative yes 
I pray that you will fall in love with God's word all over again. Again, the eyes of our hearts will be opened to God speaking to you. So this morning we're going to start with the first question. Is the Bible the word of God? Is the Bible the word of God? You know, we said this is a question of revelation. Is this God revealing himself to us in, in this book, you know, that you bring, that you carry, and that you have? Revelation, we know, is God giving us knowledge about himself that we wouldn't necessarily know. In other words, you know, we could make up things that we think about God, but this is God saying this, revealing himself to us. We talked a few weeks ago about there's a number of ways God reveals himself to us. Um, there's natural revelation, meaning he reveals himself through nature, you know, through the immensity of, of space and time and the power in nature. We can see some of the characters and the attributes of God, of, of the creator. And then we're given some special revelations. We're given at least two, Jesus Christ, you know, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. We saw him. We could see it in Jesus Christ, watching him because he is God. We, we see what God is like. But then we also have a special revelation, revelation of the Bible, God telling himself about us. Now, before we get too far into this divine revelation, we need to understand that God has not told us everything about himself. Matter of fact, I don't even want to begin to put a percentage on it, but my guess is that we probably don't even have a drop in the bucket about God and what we know. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the Lord. In other words, guys, you know, things he's revealed, those are for us, but they're secret things of God. God you know, that we can't even comprehend. Matter of fact, Paul, it was interesting, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, Paul was given a glimpse of heaven, and, and this was his conclusion. He says he was caught up into paradise, and he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. In other words, on this side of eternity, you know, my guess is our brains, our, our comprehension, and what we can compare to, there's nothing you know, that we can even begin to describe. So, so again, we don't have, you know, in this book, we don't have everything about God. But we have everything about God that is important for us to know on this side of eternity, that, that he wants us to know. He gives us everything for life and for a relationship with him and for power and for strength. All of those things he gives us, reveals them to us in his word. Now, an important point here I want to make. The primary motive of God's revelation to us is not to give us doctrine and beliefs. And you say, whoa, whoa, whoa there. Listen, hear me out here. We base our beliefs on God's revelation of himself. Our doctrine, our theology is based on his revelation. But that isn't why he gave us this book. That isn't why he gave us these letters, you know, so that we could have, you know, 12 points of doctrine and, and, you know, we could dissect it and all of that. You know, God very simply in the Bible is revealing himself to us. The Bible is the record of acts of God that he wants us to know about, what he did, what he has done. God is telling us all about himself here and what he wants us to know about him. And ultimately, through the Bible... God tells us that he is the creator, 
He is the sustainer. He created us and the world in perfectness. But man chose sin. Sin entered into mankind. And because of sin, man is separated from God. And then he goes on and tells us about a time in history that God is going to come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to die for our sins and for a make a, to make a way for you and I to be with him forever, to become a child of his again, to be restored to him. And then it goes on to tell us the decision and what we have to do on our part, the decision in our heart that we need to make if we are going to be with God in heaven for eternity. Folks, that's the Bible in a nutshell. And whether you are reading in the book of Genesis or the laborious laws of Leviticus or the endless genealogies of Chronicles, if you're reading about the victories and the defeats of the kings or the, the, the personal stories about Job and Esther and you know, Ruth, whether you're re reading the prophetic books, the New Testament Gospels, the epistles, the, the letters written to pastors, the prophetic book of Revelation, all of those books together, they're all telling the story of God. And they all fit together to reveal to you the wonderful truth of who God is, how much he loves us, and how that love ultimately took him to the cross to die for our sins. And how he longs over you to forgive you and make you one of his children. So folks, when you read the Bible, is that in the back of your mind when you're picking it up tomorrow morning and, and, or whenever you're going to you know, have some devotions or on a break at work? And you pick the Bible up and you open it up. Is that in the back of your mind? This wonderful love story of God, of who he is. And who he wants to be to us. And the relationship he wants to have. That should be in the back of all of our minds when we, when we open up the Bible. Because that's, that's the story that God is telling us. Now our question that we talked about. Is the Bible God's revelation of himself? Is, is this truly the revelation? Why not the Koran? Why not the Book of Mormon? Why not these other religious writings that are out there? How do we know that the Bible, this book, these 66 books, are God's revelation of himself? Well, there's one very large reason why we know that. The Bible is the word of God because of the evidence of fulfilled prophecy that is throughout this book. The Bible is the only book with undeniable predictions of the future where God said what he was going to do hundreds of years later, and it all came true. And ultimately, there are still things that were waiting to come true. In other words, the Bible is the only book that does God-like things. The Koran doesn't. You don't have prophecies in Koran. You have rules and regulations and you know, how to organize you know, themselves and oracles, all sorts of things. You know, telling a person how you know, they think a person should live. But the Bible, the Bible is God, has such a demonstration of Godness to it, that this isn't just man's thoughts or man's ideas, that this is the power of God that is standing behind us. The Bible is the only book with Godness in it. You know, the, it's, it's miraculous. Only God can tell 
what he is going to do. And when it happens, we know that it is God who is speaking. A gentleman named Wilbur Forbes, uh, he said this once, and I'll read it. It's kind of long here. He says, whatever one may think of the authority of the message presented in the book that we call the Bible, there is a worldwide agreement that in more ways than one, it is the most remarkable volume that has ever been produced in these some 5,000 years of writing on the part of human race. It is the only volume ever produced by man or a group of men in which is to be found a large body of prophecies relating to individuals, to nations, to Israel, to all the people of the earth, to certain cities, to the coming of the one who was to be the Messiah. The ancient world had many different devices for determining the future known as divination. But not in the entire gamut of Greek and Latin literature, even though they used the word prophet and prophecy, will you find a great historic event to come true in the distant future, nor any prophecy of a savior to arise in the human race. Muslims cannot point to any prophecies of the coming of Muhammad uttered hundreds of years before his birth. Neither can the founder of any cult in this country rightly identify any ancient text specifically foretelling their appearance. That is the godness, that is the truth of the word of God. And we could spend a month of Sundays discussing the prophecies of where God said, I'm going to do this, and then it happened. We could, I mean, hundreds of them that you find within the Bible. But, but our purpose here isn't to have a, a study on prophecy. It's just to shore up our understanding that this is God's word to us. This is the writing, and prophecy confirms it. Uh, but I want to look at a couple prophecies uh, that I've shared. And, and if you've ever been in an ABF class with me or something, uh, you know, these are the ones that so stand out to me, and I, and I often reference them. Um, I want to give you a few, just tell you the godness of this book, of why I know that this book is from God. And this is the only book that we have is from God. So we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 26 through 28. We're going to put this up here. Uh, it, it's, it's telling there, Isaiah is telling about God's judgment upon Israel. But ultimately, even though he's going to judge Israel, that he will bring Israel back. And so it says in, verse, in chapter 44, verse 26, he says, Confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messenger, it is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he, and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, the foundations will be laid. Okay, so a lot about telling about that Israel, but they've, they've gone into, they're going into captivity. Uh, captivity. They're being punished by God because of their disobedience, but God is saying, I'm going to bring it back, and I'm going to rebuild the city. I'm going to rebuild the temple. And sure enough, you know, 170 years after this event, after he said this in Isaiah, sure enough, it happened. Israel was captured by the Babylonians in 605 B.C. Seventy years later, in 535 B.C., the Medes and the Persians joined forces, and they overthrew the Babylonians. Anybody know what the king of Persia's name was at that time? 
Cyrus, yes, just like it says here. Put that prophecy back up for us, will you, in Isaiah 44? Go ahead and put that back up for us. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desires. So think about this. Um, after Cyrus becomes his king, and after they defeat the Babylonians, it says King Cyrus, soon afterwards, he issued a decree allowing those who were taken by the Babylonians to go back to Jerusalem and to begin rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the, uh, the, the city. And Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all the people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let me ask you here. Do you think that Cyrus's parents, King Cyrus's parents, when, when Cyrus was born, that little baby, that the parents looked at them and said, oh, someday this child is going to be the king of Persia. And someday they're going to defeat the Persians. And they're going to return the Jews to their land. So we better name him Cyrus. No, they didn't do that. I mean, that was, it was a Gentile name. They knew nothing of, 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 of Judaism. They knew nothing of the laws. They didn't have these books. I mean, they weren't trying to do this so they followed along, you know, what the Lord would say in the name of the king. God was saying that there's going to be a man named Cyrus, who, you know, the king of Persia, who was going to allow his people to go back and rebuild the city. Now, some people say, you know, when we look at prophecies like this, we're talking about, you know, this was some 170 years before it happened. He said this is what was going to happen. Now, there's people who will say, well, those were actually written after the events took place. Folks, whenever someone says something like that, what they're actually saying is, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Because that is the truth. They have absolutely no idea what they are talking about. I mean, the Jewish nation accepted all the prophetic books as prophecy. I mean, if, if, if the Old Testament, all of those prophecies, if they had been written after the fact, wouldn't the Jewish people have known about it? Would they have lived their lives for these promises and for these truths? Would they have made the sacrifices that they made for something that they knew wasn't true? If some think that it's some sort of a big conspiracy, you know, that, that, that Christians, you know, try to, to, to bolster their faith and get people to believe it, if some think that, just look at the datings of these writings. And again, I'm not a linguistic expert, um, but that, you know, Wilbur Smith talked about the universality of the world that looks at the Bible and, and they can see something's different about it. I mean, you look at the styles of when it was written, the men who has written in their culture, all of it points to it being written at different times. Um, yet, you know, even though it was written over some 1,500 years in different places, some diff 40 different authors, you know, this message is all intertwined together. How do you arrange a conspiracy over 1,500 years? You know, 40 different people, different cultures, you know, 
different cities, you know, Gentiles, believers, non-believers. How do you arrange something like that? I mean, it's impossible. And then you have the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls back in 1945. We're going to put a 47, excuse me, we're going to put a picture of this. I referenced this before. This is Kumarah. And this is where back in 1947 there was a shepherd boy and um, they were herding his sheep, climbing the rocks. And these are caves all over here. Matter of fact, if you had a big blown up picture, you would see hundreds of caves there. And so this shepherd boy was taking rocks and chucking them in, trying to hit the holes, just playing a game. And suddenly he heard something clunk, you know, something break. And he went up in it. And that's how the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And in these, these Dead Sea Scrolls, there are so many writings of the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah and Habakkuk, and you could date those, not you know, secular dating, not some Christian dating, could date those being to the first and second century, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ. Um, if you're, next picture, yeah, those are the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are some of that they found. Again, these things are, you know, hundreds of years old, thousands of years old, and so you can imagine what it took to open them up. But this is, this is the word of God on scrolls. As a matter of fact, there was a, uh, they believed there was a village just outside of this area um, where they thought possibly John the Baptist was raised. Um, and there's a group of men who totally pulled away. And for hundreds of years, they lived out in the wilderness, and they copied the word of God to preserve it. And then they put it in these big vases, and they put it up in the caves. And, and again, so to say it was written after it, when we can date the writings and the paper and everything as being before that, you know, it's, it, it, it's a fool statement to say that somehow this is a conspiracy. Um, and there's so many of their prophecies in these scrolls that happened after the dating of, of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there's so many more prophecies like that. I love this one. In Ezekiel chapter 26, verses 3 through 5, uh, we're going to put that up here. It says, the city of Tyre... It's a Gentile city. When Israel fell into captivity, it says this Gentile city rejoiced. They hated Israel. They celebrated that God's people had fallen in captivity. Listen to what God said was going to happen to the city of Tyre because of this. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you, as the seas bring up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrap her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of seas, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become spoil for the nations. Also, they will make a spoil of your riches and prey on your merchandise, break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. And don't miss this phrase. And they will throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. So that's quite a specific prophecy there. It's not very general. It's very, very specific. It's not just saying, someday, O Tyre, you are going to be defeated. Almost every nation you know, was defeated at some point or not. But it talks about the defeat. And it says very specifically that they were going to, the city was going to be laid barren. It was going to become a place where fishermen just spread out their nets that all the debris of the city was going to be thrown into the ocean. Well, you know, debris to us might not be that important, but to them, you didn't get rid of timbers and stone and everything. You reused the stuff to rebuild the cities. So you didn't just throw it into the ocean. So this is something very specific to their time. 
Well, history has showed us, and this is from archaeology. This isn't from Christianity today. This is from archaeology. We know that Nebuchadnezzar partially destroyed the city um, back, in about, uh, back in about 330 B.C. Alexander the Great, um, he was from Greece. He marched then later against the city of Tyre. Now we're going to put the picture up here if you would. So the city of Tyre, let me get this here. This is actually the coastline, and it went from here to here. And the city of Tyre was actually out in here. This right here was an island, actually a half a mile out into the ocean outside of the city of Tyre. One of their defenses of the city is that when anybody marched against them, they simply would load themselves up in the boat, and they would go out, and they would live out in this island here. Well, Alexander the Great, you know, he marched against them, frustrated that he doesn't have any boats, so he can't go in to defeat them. He takes the city, and stone by stone and timber by timber, this whole area here, he fills up the ocean, and he makes a bridge, and he walks across, and he takes the city of, of, of Tyre. Again, folks, this is all secular history. Um, you know, I, I, I had this in my biblical notes for a long time, and I just Googled it. You know, Alexander the Great in the city of Tyre. And it gives you two, three pages, you know, telling the story just like I told it. This is actually what happened. I mean, folks, do you, do you feel the godness of this book? There is nothing in our world today like it. Not computers, not technology, nothing can compare to the Bible. I mean, we look at our supercomputers and we think, oh, look at all this we have at our fingertips. Folks, they didn't think of any of that. There's nothing in a computer that wasn't put there by somebody. There's nothing that a computer can say is going to be happening in the future. But here is God telling us what he is going to do, very specific details in history. Why? Because the history is his story. It's about what he's going to do and about how he is working in mankind. And this doesn't even scratch the surface of, of the prophetic truth that is out there. Um, we taught in ABF a couple years ago in the book of Daniel. If you remember, Daniel was given a vision towards the, the end of the captivity about the four Gentile nations that ultimately would rule the Jews until the coming of Jesus Christ. He's told of the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and ultimately the Romans. Again, it happened just as he said. Interesting, the third nation that he said would rule Israel, the Greeks, Daniel tells us that its ruler, you know, the, the, the great general, would die at the peak of its power and says then his kingdom would be divided into four sections. Daniel chapter 8, verse 21 and 22 says this. Again, it's talking in prophetic terms here in visions. It says the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. That broken horn and the foreign horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In other words, that horn's going to be broken off. Four horns, four kings are going to rise up in its power. Okay, once again, look at archaeology. Look at the study of Alexander the Great. We know that Alexander the Great was the king of Greece, great military mind. But he died at the age of 33. He had no sons, no one to hand his kingdom to, 
And so archaeology shows that his kingdom was divided amongst his four generals. And here is the name of their, the four generals. They're hard to pronounce. Antigonus, Ptolemy, I don't know what that middle third one is, and Cassander. And that there are the four generals. This is all archaeology. All happening exactly, exactly how the Bible says it's going to happen. This is God revealing himself to us, proving us. How do I know that the Bible is God's word? This isn't just the, the best writings of man, the best religious writings of man. Because there are things in here that no way possible a man could see coming and a man could do. We know that they are revealed to us by God. And that's how we know we can stand on the word of God. So, so what do you take away from all of this? What do, you, what do you take away from all of this, all of these, these prophecies? I mean, I, over and over and over, one prophecy after another. You know, just concerning the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, there are over 50 prophecies about Christ, about his birth, his life, and his death. Over 50 prophecies in the Old Testament written hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years, before Christ would be born. If you just take eight of those prophecies... The mathematical possibility of those eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person would be one with 17 zeros after. And you think, well, okay, well, that's a big number. Well, let's give me, let me give you another idea of it. If I filled this sanctuary up about two feet high with, with silver dollars, filled this whole sanctuary, and took one of them, and I put an X on it, and I mixed it in. And then we brought a blind man in and told him to go pick one out. What do you think the odds would be that he would pick the right one out? Not very good. Well, one with 17 zeros after it would actually be Texas. This, uh, uh, Texas filled to two feet high with silver dollars. Not a sanctuary. The, 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 the nation or the, the state of Texas. And one marked with an X and a blind man being able to go and just randomly pick it and getting it. That's the probability of all that was fulfilled in that person of Jesus Christ. I mean, so much, so much prophecy, so much proof and understanding that this is the word of God. This is, this is his story, it's not just telling us what's going to happen, but also telling us what he is going to do. And so the question is, where, what do we take away from all of this? You know, this is all great truth and information. Where, where do I go with this? Well, let me give you a couple of things. Number one, God has revealed himself to you. You know, he's revealed truth that we're to be living by. He is telling us how he wants us to interact with us. And don't lose that truth in all of these proofs. And, you know, we look at these prophecies and, ah, oh, they're amazing. You know, don't, don't lose the intimacy of it that God has written this book to you, for you personally. Yes, collectively, yes, but for you personally. personally. And so, so as you are reading it today, I, I want to ask the question, whose message are you following today? There's a lot of messages out there telling you what you should be doing, your priorities, what they should be, be what you should be spending your time, your resources, your energy, your strength on. Are you spending it? Are you spending your time following the truth that God has revealed to you? Are you following the truth of the world? Are you living your life by the word of God or by the philosophy of man? Some people try to do both. 
Ah, I'm the best of both worlds. Um, you know, God says you can't do that. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, The word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my, fat, my path. I mean, why would you trust your life to anything else other than what God says is and is going to be? So this week, in all of your accumulative hours you're going to spend in the Bible, let's read it with the realization that God wants you to know some things about himself. He wants to speak with you. And secondly, as you read the Bible and it reveals God to you, there is a message that God doesn't want you to miss. And I'd like, it's like a love letter that God has written to you through a thousand pages here. Something that he's saying to you personally. It tells us, this letter tells us that God loves you so much. He created you from, you know, for things greater than this life. Our sins, our wrong, keep us from a perfect holy relationship with God and from him having a relationship with us. This book tells us that since we are all sinners, but God still loves us so much, God came down to the world and paid the penalty for your sin, for my sin. No matter what we've done, God loves you more than the worst sins that you have in your life. The accumulation of all of your sins, he loves you more than all of those. But for you to be forgiven, for your debt to be paid to God, to have a relationship with God, you must repent of your sins, accept Christ's payment on the cross, and give your life to God. And again, this isn't three different steps. It's all one step. Recognizing your sin, repentance, and accepting Christ's death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, accepting him into your life. God has proven to us, God has proven to you that this message, this revelation is from him. This is truth. This is the standard. This is the measuring rod that all of us, when we stand before God, are going to be determined by. The question is, what have you done with that message? What have you done with that truth that he has given you? Are, have you become a child of God? Have you acknowledged your sinfulness and your need for a Savior and asked him to forgive you? And if you're a Christian, you know, you know Christ as your Lord and say, are you living your life for this? Are you, are you trying to straddle both worlds? You know, is, it, is, is God's word enough? And his truth, do you believe it enough to give your life to it? Let's pray. Father God, I ask you as only you can to search the, our hearts. Lord, you know where we stand today before you. You know those here that you are calling to yourself that need to be, that he wants to be children of his. And so I pray, Father, that, that you will speak to them. I pray that there are any right now that are opening their heart to you, Father, repenting, accepting you. Father, that there will be that rejoicing. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Lord, we would love to just be part of that person's walk with Christ. So I pray that, you know, if that has happened today, that they would reveal that to somebody. You know, tell me, Lord, so we can help them in the next steps. And God, for us that know you, I just, I don't want to play Christian anymore. I don't want to play church. Father, these are 
things of eternity. These are truths that the world may neglect, but Father, one day will answer for. And Father, we had that message to get out to them, and I pray that you will help us, first of all, to, to live it in our lives, and secondly, then, to reveal it to those around us who do not know you. We love you, Lord, and I just thank you for your word. In thy name we pray.